So the text we're going to be in this morning is Luke 13. I want to just give you that heads up, and you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Now, in the uh, technologically advanced times in which we live, the Internet and digital media have enabled us to have virtually unlimited access um, to information and a constant flow of communication with the rest of the world. More connected than ever before, and well, along with that, we are, we are more informed than ever before. We have an unprecedented level of exposure to local, national, and global news reporting, and through this, we have a nearly constant flow of reminders that the world in which we live is plagued with evil, destruction, and death. And often we're confronted with shocking news reports of deadly calamity befalling people, some kind of disastrous, disastrous event or tragic accident or violent attack. And in such cases, death has come unexpectedly. It's come to people under uniquely dreadful circumstances. What are we to make of such events when there's a, there's a tragedy or, or an atrocity that brings people's lives to such a swift and sudden end. This morning we will consider the Lord Jesus' response when such news was reported to him. And that brings us to our text in Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. Let's read. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, it was a, a common assumption in, among the Jews in Jesus' day, and really historically uh, throughout many generations, that well, suffering was always a direct judgment against sin, divine judgment. And therefore, when calamity struck and people suddenly and horrifically perished, well, it, it must have been because they were guilty of, of some particularly great offense against God. Now, concerning the event that is described in, in this passage, in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Luke, well, there's, there's no historical record of it outside of this passage in Luke's gospel. So these are the only details we have. But what we can see based on what is said here is that the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, had some Galilean Jews executed in the temple at Jerusalem when they were preparing to present their sacrifices to God. Now, this was a shocking event, and we can assume that it had sparked tremendous outrage from the Jews against this pagan ruler who had desecrated God's temple in such a horrific way. And here we see that some people told Jesus about it. 
They gave him the shocking news report. Now, why did they do that? Did they just want him to be informed? Or were they trying to get him to teach on the, on the problem of evil and human suffering? Or were they testing him? Perhaps trying to get a rise out of him, considering the fact that Jesus also was a Galilean. Verse 1 begins with the following statement. There were some present at that very time. And the phrase at that very time prompts us to consider the text leading up to this passage. And when we do that, we see that the event was mentioned to Jesus right after he had given warnings of the coming judgment of God and the need to be reconciled to him in order to be delivered from it. Really the second half of chapter 12. But even just backing up a little bit, if you look back in chapter 12, at verse 49, Jesus did make the statement, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. And then later, if we pick up in in verse 54 through 59, he says this to the crowds before him, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of, of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And then, of course, we read the next verse. There was some present at that very time. We told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, perhaps those who mentioned the shocking event thought that these Galilean Jews were an example of those who failed to interpret the present time and be reconciled to God. And as a result, they had fallen under the judgment of God and died a horrific sudden death. Perhaps they were responding to Jesus' illustration about the exacting nature of God's judgment and considering how that applied to those unfortunate Galileans. Well, let's consider Jesus' response to them. He answered them, verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way. No, I tell you. And the people were assuming that there was a direct correlation between suffering and sin. And that the nature of the Galileans' suffering and the manner of their death was an indication of the greatness of their sins. However, Jesus clarified that this was not the case. In verse 4, the Lord in response mentions a different deadly event that had occurred in Jerusalem. He referred to 18 persons on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Now, Siloam was the name of an area at the southeast end of the city of Jerusalem where there was a well-known water reservoir called the Pool of Siloam. And the tower was likely one of the fortifications near the area where the southern and eastern walls of the city came together. And it could have been that its collapse was due to a poorly laid foundation. But whatever the case was, 
On a day like any other day, the tower suddenly fell and 18 people lost their lives. Jesus followed up this second event with a similar question. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Were they singled out compared to everyone else? And he gives the answer, no, I tell you. Now, our Lord didn't say that those who died were innocent. Rather, he was correcting the people's assumption that those who died in these ways were somehow more guilty before God than everyone else. Jesus clarified that those who were taken in calamity did not die that way because they were worse sinners. And having made that clarification, he then put the focus on those who were still living. Jesus wanted those present among him to come to grips with the reality of their own guilt before God. In verses 3 and 5, we see Jesus warned those who were standing in front of him, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that's an essential truth. One of the three essential truths we can take away from this passage that Jesus makes completely clear, guilt is universal. Guilt before God is universal. The people may have formulated their own opinions about those who had died, judging them to be especially guilty, but Jesus turned the tables on them and pointed out their own guilt. And we ought to do the same with ourselves and acknowledge the fact that we are all guilty sinners who have sinned against a holy God. And again, usually when we read of tragic events, disastrous, disastrous events, lives lost, our focus really is on the unfortunate, unfortunate circumstances of those who have perished. And sometimes we might wonder, was this a judgment of God for some specific thing? Or maybe we go to the other extreme and think, poor innocent people to have perished in this way. But Jesus helps us understand they're not entirely innocent, but they're not necessarily more guilty. And he points out the truth that all are guilty before God. And that truth we, we read about all throughout Scripture, the testimony to our universal guilt because of our sins. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord Yahweh God, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The inclination of man's heart is bent away from God to serving and glorifying and living for self above all else, to not worship God, his creator. That is the bent of his heart, and there is that statement. Wickedness issues forth because every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. In Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Every act, again, from, from the evil heart is self-motivated. It is ultimately for self. It is not ultimately for the glory of God, purely for the glory of God, and therefore it is evil. 
It is not truly good. Scripture also says, and we read this in Romans 3.23, perhaps you have this memorized, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the case is clear. We are all guilty before God. And Jesus, by his statement, not only pointed to the reality of the people's own personal guilt before God, he also warned them that if that they were under the imminent threat of God's judgment. Because what does he say? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's not just that you are, you are also guilty. You will all likewise perish. It's the warning of judgment. And that's the second essential truth. First is guilt is universal. The second is judgment is certain. Now what does it mean that they will all likewise perish? What did he mean by that? You will all likewise perish. Well, first of all, it does not mean that they will perish in the exact same way, slain by Pilate in the temple or crushed by the tower in Siloam. Also, it does not simply mean that they will die, as in just he's talking about death in general. Uh, since will all men die, and whether they are repentant or not. Plus, that wouldn't be much of a warning to the people, would it? Simply saying that, well, you'll die someday too. But Jesus was actually warning them, this group in front of him, this crowd of God's coming judgment against the nation of Israel if they continued in their hardness of heart and rejected him, their Messiah. He had already identified their generation as an evil generation. He says in chapter 11, if we turn back to chapter 11, verse 29, we'll see in verse 29, it says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And then look at verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And when Jesus later arrived at the, the city of Jerusalem, because our passage is, he's on his way to Jerusalem, his final journey to Jerusalem to do what? Give his life as a ransom for the sins of his people. And his whole ministry is preaching the word of God, preaching the truth that they need to be reconciled to God. Testifying by signs and wonders, and they, they continue to not believe in him. So then when he later arrives at the city of Jerusalem... In chapter 19, it says that he wept over the city. And in chapter 19, verses 42 through 44, he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. This is to Jerusalem. 
and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then one other passage in chapter 21, verses 20 through 24. Jesus said, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, foretelling what's going to happen, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Devastation was coming. And this judgment actually came to pass in 70 A.D., when the Roman general Titus besieged and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of Jews died as a result. And nearly 100,000 were captured and enslaved. Now the fact that Jesus in Luke 13 was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, which would occur with that generation, well that explains why he said, you will all likewise perish. There's an imminent threat. They would be swept away by swift and horrific judgment. Many, in fact, would be cut down with the sword. Like those Galileans. However, in a, a greater and more ultimate sense, the unrepentant Israelites would perish eternally in hell. Jesus had previously warned them and back in chapter 12, in verses 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This warning not only applied to the the Jews of that generation, the people of that generation, it applies to us today as well. We may not be first century Jews under the threat of God's impending earthly judgment against our nation for its rejection of the Messiah, but we can be certain that unless we ourselves repent before God, we also will face eternal death and judgment in hell for our sins. We are guilty. Judgment is certain. And there's a, a third essential truth in this text. Guilt is universal. Judgment is certain. Repentance is necessary. Jesus said, but unless you repent, that is the condition. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So how can you be spared from the, the judgment of God? How can you be saved from the eternal wrath of God? Well, our Lord presents one condition. You must repent. You must repent. 
What is repentance? Well, repentance simply defined is, is turning in faith from sin to God. Faith is involved. It's two sides of the same coin, but re- repentance is the turning in faith from sin to God. It is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in your life. True repentance involves the following. First, changing your mind about your own sinfulness and guilt before God. That's the, the, the key. We talk about a change of mind. It's, that's the, the, the important thing. Changing your mind about your own sinfulness and guilt before God. Second, feeling sorrow and regret over your sins. Remorse. And third, it is the turning from loving and practicing sin to loving and serving God. It is a turning to living for yourself, glory, uh, living for the glory of yourself, to serve yourself, and turning in faith to now serve the living God. The call to repentance was central to the preaching of Jesus. And it was central to the preaching of his forerunner, John the Baptist, as well as that of his apostles. It is an essential element of the gospel, of proclaiming the gospel. And we see it in the Lord's ministry, in his forerunner's ministry, in his apostles' ministry throughout Scripture. The Jews of Jesus' day, they were not the only ones called to repent. The Apostle Paul said uh, to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that he solemnly testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. Paul said to the Gentile men of Athens, the sophisticated ones, the elites, the sophisticated crowd, he said the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? To repent. Repentance is a necessary condition for receiving God's forgiveness and being spared from his judgment. When Jesus appeared to his disciples after he had risen from the dead, he explained to them that the scriptures taught that the Christ should suffer and die And on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins, proclaimed in Jesus' name. Now, you may ask, you may wonder, maybe based on the way you've heard the gospel preached or explained to you, don't we just need to have faith in Christ? To believe. Aren't we saved by grace alone through faith alone? Yes, we are. That is true. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, through faith. And even this, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. However, And this is the point we have to remember. Faith is not genuine saving faith apart from repentance. 
And this is why when the, the Bible speaks about salvation, faith and repentance are often used interchangeably. Faith unto salvation always implies that there is repentance. And repentance unto salvation always implies that there is faith. It's done in faith. And the saving faith is there's repentance towards God. For example, Scripture says that whoever believes in Christ will have eternal life and will not perish, John 3.16. However, Jesus himself said that unless you repent, you will perish. That's our text, Luke 13. Another example, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And also, after Peter preached the gospel to a Jewish crowd, he said to them, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The same stress is given to both because they go together. Because repentance is the evidence that it is genuine saving faith. You are responding in belief, true belief, in the good news. Some people profess faith in Christ and believe that they have fellowship with him even though there is no change in the moral direction of their life. And even though they they still live in unbroken patterns of sin. Is that you? Do you claim to be a Christian but have never truly experienced a, a radical change in the direction of your life? Are you still living in sin? That is an empty and dead faith. There is no repentance. The Apostle John said in in 1 John, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, again, direction of life, pattern of life, walking in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So repentance and faith are interwoven aspects of genuine conversion. They go hand in hand. Jesus preached, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That was the central message of his ministry. And he gave that command to his disciples after him to keep proclaiming that message. You must repent and believe the gospel. So as an illustration, we could consider the account of the rich young ruler who asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus told the man to sell his possessions and distribute them to the poor so that he would have treasure in heaven and then come follow him. Now, again, this man had said, you know, all the commandments of God, I've done them. I've been faithful in them. And he said, one thing you lack, right? And he gave him this task to sell his possessions, distribute the poor so that he would have treasure in heaven and then to come follow him. And the man was eager for eternal life. He was told what was still to be done. But upon hearing this, the man went away grieving because he was extremely rich uh, rich and owned much property. Jesus said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And what Jesus did in that moment, in that encounter, he exposed the man's love for money, love for his possessions, and he explained that what kept the man from salvation was his unwillingness to forsake to turn away from the things that he loved and valued more than God. So this account, as an illustration, points to the fact that repentance is indeed a condition of salvation that coincides with saving faith. 
Repentance is turning in faith from sin to God. It is a turning from worshiping created things to worshiping the creator. It is a turning from trusting in ourselves to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is able to reconcile us to God on the basis of his death on the cross for our sins. What are you trusting in to have a right relationship with God? What is your hope or what are you clinging to that gives you an assurance that you will go to heaven when you die? Where is your real confidence? Is it in yourself? Or is it wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ who did the work that was necessary on your behalf? All of it. Repentance is turning from trusting in self to turning to trusting in Christ alone as the all-sufficient Savior. This was true of the Thessalonians' conversion. Paul recalled that their faith toward God had become very well known and that people from all over the world, or all over the known world at the time, were reporting how they had, well, they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. But they had turned to God from idols to serve God and to wait for Jesus Christ as the one who would deliver from the wrath of God. Can the same be said of you? Does that describe your life? Is that your story? Have you truly repented? Have you turned from your sins? Have you forsaken your idols? Have you forsaken your denial of your own depravity and guilt before God, your own wickedness? Remember, Jesus said that the, the world hated him because he testified that it's, it was evil, that the works were evil. People don't like to hear that. But the one who truly repents recognizes that. I am wicked. God is holy. And I see that now. And I need salvation. I am turning to him for mercy. Is that you? Have you repented? Turned away from that denial of your own guilt before God? Have you forsaken your attempts to justify yourself before God? Why should God let you into heaven when you die? What might be your response? Well, I try really hard. I, I try to be a good person. Well, I'm, yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've done more good in my life. You know, I... I think, well, because God is love, right? We'll come up with all these reasons, but reasons why we would justify ourselves before God. But repentance is forsaking that. That is self-justification and turning to God alone who can make you righteous and make you right with him. Have you turned away from all these things and turned in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he can and will save you from your sins and the judgment of God that you deserve? I mean, that's what we were trusting in Christ for. We and what we've come to believe that he truly is able and he truly will. He is faithful to save us from the judgment we deserve. Turning to trusting in that, that is repentance. Have you repented? Sin is universal. Judgment is certain. Repentance is necessary. And let the, the statement that we have in this passage in Luke 13, don't forget that. Unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. G. Campbell Morgan, he was a renowned uh, Bible expositor from uh, a century ago. He made the following comment on the passage we have been considering this morning. He said, Catastrophe is no proof of special sin. A man can perish, though Pilate never slay him. He can perish, though no tower crush him. He may die in his bed with his friends all about him and even have music while he dies. But he will be damned unless he repent. Now, though we, have, we may have uh, pity towards those who, who seem to die early and suddenly, when we hear of that, when we read of that, what well, we must take to heart and remember, when that happens, we must remember that our days are numbered as well. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Those people were going about their business as usual as well. Now, tragedy may not strike us in the same way, but death is just as certain for us. And after that comes judgment. And we all must repent, as the Lord said, or we will likewise perish. Do we take that to heart? There's nothing more important in this life than being reconciled to God before you meet him. What is the greatest? That should be the greatest priority in everybody's life. They need to hear that warning because nothing else matters. All that you have gained will be burned up. You will not take it with you, but you will meet your maker. And he's either entering into blessing in his presence, having received his mercy because you have repented now, or it is dying in your sins as the Lord warned and being separated from his blessing forever, and being in place of torment and judgment forever, which is what we deserve. Now Jesus followed up his warning with another warning. And if we look at the verses that follow verse 5 in chapter 13, we look at 6 through 9. Right after we have this encounter and these statements, he continues on and he says this. He tells a parable. And here's the parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure, you know, fertilize it. Well, then if it should bear fruit next, next year, well, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What does that teach? Well, the, the main point, again, we keep in mind what, who Jesus was speaking to, right? We know the warning that was given to that generation but, but the principle really is the same for everybody. The opportunity, you've heard the warning, the opportunity to repent and receive God's mercy 
instead of his wrath will not last forever. We have already had more than enough time to respond to the call to repent. And even now, as we look at this text, the word of God is living and active. We read the Lord's words and we hear that warning to ourselves this morning. Once again, we have been confronted with the warning and the commandment of God. The life that continues to lack evidence of repentance toward God and faith in Christ is the fruitless tree that will be cut down. Why should it use up the ground? What is God's assessment of you if you're being honest before him? Because he, he weighs the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He examines the heart. He's looking upon all the sons of men, examining our ways. Are we the fruitless tree? Are, there, are we the ones who are not worshiping him, that have not repented, and are, are taking uh, advantage of the grace and kindness he's given us We must not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience toward us. Scripture says his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. We have opportunity now. There is an urgency in the gospel message. It is the good news that the grace of God and the mercy of God has come through through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bore the wrath for sinners. But your days are numbered. Your time is limited. It is dwindling. And you must what? You must repent now. Today is the day of salvation. Let's take that to heart. And let's think of that not only for us as we reflect upon our own position before God, relationship with God. Do we know him? Have we repented? But for those of you who have, even considering that this must be our message to others. As we evangelize, we tell them the good news, but there's a call. And the call is what? To remind them that they are guilty before God. Like us, they need mercy. And if they repent, they will receive it. The one who confesses his sins and forsakes them obtains mercy from God. And that is found because of what Jesus has done. That is the gospel. Let's take that to heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you truly are a merciful God. We're reminded of the fact that our sins are before you, our guilt is before you, and you are holy. And if we're truly being honest with ourselves, we know that our deeds, we do evil things. We know that coming into this world, naturally we just have no desire to worship you, to seek you, to honor you. We're so self-focused. And yet, you initiated your work of salvation according to your sovereign plan, by sending your son into the world, that he might pay the price for our sins so that through faith in him, we might not enter into judgment, but have the opportunity to repent and receive your mercy. We thank you that you have made a way of salvation for sinners like us through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, the only righteous one who can reconcile us to you. I pray for those who this morning profess faith, maybe profess faith in Christ, but have not truly repented that you would convict them of their sin now and that they would see the the reality that their faith is not a living faith unless they have come to repentance and they've turned about and turned away from their sins and turned to you in faith to seek to 
worship you and serve you alone above all else and that they would trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And I pray for those of us who by your grace have done so because we know that that is a gift. You grant repentance and faith that we would never forget that we are standing in grace. We are, are still sinners, Father, and we need your mercy every day. But we thank you for the security that we have knowing that we are clothed with the righteousness of your son. And that is a gift from you. We are no better than anybody else. But it was your good pleasure to show your grace and mercy by pouring it out on us. Thank you for saving us. Help us to be clear when we preach the gospel, when we proclaim it, when we teach it to others, that we don't neglect giving them the urgent call that they, likewise, they must repent and believe the gospel. They must repent and trust in Christ, or they will likewise perish. Help us to exalt you by proclaiming this glorious message through which you receive glory. It is the way of salvation that you have appointed, the means, the message of Jesus Christ, the salvation from sins for all who repent and believe. Thank you for your kindness and and as we sing a, a final song this morning, we rejoice in the truth that it contains, all that you have done for sinners in Christ. And we know that those of us have repented and believed that all these truths have applied to us this morning. Amen.